welcome to the Vine Church Podcast. Today we welcome Dr. Katie Butler, and she has written a book called Glimmers of Grace, and the subtitle is A Doctor's Reflections on Faith, Suffering, and the Goodness of God. And so, Katie, thank you so much for being willing to show up and have a conversation with me about your book and anything else we might stumble upon in conversation. Thank you. It's a real pleasure, and I'm privileged to be here. Yeah. So, Katie, um, tell us just a little bit of your story. Let us get to know you. Um, I know just from a little background I've read on you, um, just you have an interesting journey. Uh, so, yeah, just give us give us a, who you are, what do you do, what, you know, how did you end up writing this book, and anything else you want to share? Sure. Um it's been a journey of grace and really seeing God's goodness and faithfulness in spite of my own fumblings, I'll say that, and foibles. I uh, I have lived in the Northeast my whole life in places where the snows are long in the winter and the drivers are inconsiderate often, <laughs> um, and uh, did not grow up knowing the Lord, did not come to Christ until I was 30, and sought out a career in medicine after watching my father um, struggle through, survive, and then recover from a heart attack when I was 18. Okay. And was really taken with what an amazing way to um, have an impact and to really give it back in a positive way. And this was from a secular point of view, of course, because I didn't know the Lord then. Mm-hmm. And went into surgery because I loved the instant gratification of being able to help people immediately with whatever pathology or disease brought them into the hospital. And the Lord actually used my surgical training and the suffering that I witnessed to bring me to Christ, um, which is something that I go into detail in in the book. Uh, I actually had a, a faith crisis during my years in training because of what I witnessed and really struggling with big questions of you know, where is God in the midst of suffering? Why would he let catastrophes fall upon people who are just going about their lives and loving others and going to their jobs and studying for school the way we all do? Um, And then it was through a series of events while I was in the midst of that struggle that he actually brought brought me to himself. Hmm. Uh, I I then went on to um, study surgical critical care and came on the staff um, at my local hospital, Mass General, as a trauma surgeon for several years, loved my work, uh, thought I had was in the dream job, was also incredibly arrogant and really had made an idol of my work. And the Lord said, nope, you're not doing this anymore. Hmm. <laughs> and, and placed it upon my heart to actually leave it all and to homeschool my kids. And so in 2016, I left practice and I've been with my, my kids ever since. They are almost six and eight. Okay. And I've fallen into a writing ministry um, that God's really, with which God's blessed me uh, that I never would have anticipated. So I'm, I'm grateful for it all. <laughs> yeah. So trauma surgeon, that means like there's a horrible car accident and you're the one that's going to put yeah. something back together. Or was there a specific type of surgery that you specialized in? Or when you say trauma surgeon, what does that actually mean? Yeah, it's trauma and critical care. So it's it's two pieces. There's the operative side of going to the operating room for basically anything you come in with that's from an accident or an injury or even anything that's surgical that needs care immediately. So a ruptured appendix, a ruptured colon, any kind of disaster in the abdomen or after having gone through a car accident and having injuries that need to be operated on. So I would do that. But the other half of it is ICU care. Yeah. And and so it was taking care of people who either had a surgical issue or who had come through an operation and needed the most intensive care in the hospital. It was that's what the the two features of the specialty were. Okay. And I'm really curious to hear more details about your testimony and you know yeah, so how did that happen and like were you raised with anything in reference to Christianity or were you like post Christian, like didn't even hardly know what Easter or good Friday was, or, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like where, where were you on like, um, the spiritual spectrum? Of spectrum? Unbelief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I probably would be best categorized as a nominal Christian. Um, my family upheld Christian traditions 
Um, my mother would pray on her own and would teach us to say grace, but we never read the Bible, never went to church. I thought being a Christian was synonymous with being a good person. Yep. You know, so I, I believed in a God, but I didn't know him. I didn't okay. know who he was. I didn't know my need for salvation. I didn't know what Jesus had done. I didn't understand what Jesus had to do with Christmas when we had Santa as the main feature right. every year, right. you know, so that's, that's really what I was. So I believed in God, but it was a very sentimental, untested, um, f- without any real root. And, and so as a tree without roots comes crashing down in the midst of a storm, that was what happened to the meager faith I had once I was actually face to face with some of the harder questions that all Christian disciples go through. Right. Um, you know, and, I, I wrote Glimmers of Grace in part just because I, I realize how the hospital can be a real crucible for putting people, even in very who have very strong convictions and are firm in their faith, much more so, much more so than I was, of really throwing them into turmoil um, because you're facing life and death and issues of pain and disability and freedoms taken away and all the, the anguish and the fear of what lies ahead. And you're doing so in an environment that's heavily secularized. You're ripped away from the traditions that you would normally cling to, to remind you of God's love. And so I just, I witnessed that firsthand and I went through it myself. (laughs) So I, I, I was not um, very well grounded at all in faith. And then I was content just to pray on my own independently And when I was halfway through my training, um, one of my uh, positions was to be in the emergency room where for a month, I and another resident would be in the emergency room for 24 hour shifts. So we'd be 24 hours on 24 hours off. And our, our job was to take care and initially manage everything that came into the emergency room that was potentially surgical. So it could be something as benign as having an abscess that needed to be drained or as significant as a ruptured aortic aneurysm or an esophageal rupture or yeah. the car accidents that we're talking about. And it was right. my job to initially see what was going on, stabilize them, and then call in for extra help so they could go to where they needed. And I loved it. I loved it because I loved the learning curve was very steep. And it was just such a, a privilege to be able to help people in this way. Yep. Um, but I had one night where I was just gutted by the degree of atrocity that I saw where I had three young people come in back to back after having been assaulted in horrific circumstances. And it just laid bare all the things that I hadn't asked myself about suffering. Yeah, You know, so I, I had um, the first was there was a couple in their twenties uh, who were bludgeoned, the wife was bludgeoned to death. The husband was bludgeoned to the point where he had severe brain injury in their bed by someone who'd come in with a baseball bat and their four-year-old son witnessed the whole thing. Oh my God. And so the husband was brought in. I was working to try to stabilize him because he was bleeding into his brain basically and needed to go to uh, the operating room urgently to have a decompression where they took part of his skull off. And I was trying to keep him alive to get there. And all I could think of as I was placing these lines was this poor four-year-old boy who had just witnessed his parents, who would probably be an orphan and had just witnessed his parents be beaten to death. And what, what was the rest of his life going to look like? Right. Um, And then immediately after that, because things wind up happening and other people who are in the healthcare field will attest to this, it comes often like a juggernaut. It's like a flood. You'll have these moments in the ER where things just hit you and there's no space between them. And this is one of those nights. Um, The second was a 15-year-old kid who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and had been shot in the chest and came in without a pulse. Wow. And in that those circumstances, you make a last-ditch effort to save life by actually opening up the chest in the emergency room. It's called an ED thoracotomy. Okay. And um, I, I did that and then realized as soon as we got in that it was something we could not fix, that it had ripped open his main pulmonary artery, and there was no way we could fix it. And so he was lying there dead Yeah. and uh, staggered back kind of dazed from the, the table and then had to go talk to change changed and then had to go talk to his family who was his aunt and uncle 
and learned that the cruel irony was that they had brought him here from Guatemala to have a better life. Oh, and wow. here is his life cut off, you know. And then the last was another 15-year-old kid um, who had been shot this, but this time in the head and came in and we, he, the paramedics had intubated him. So he was on a ventilator. So his lungs were breathing. His heart was beating because we were artificially keeping him alive with the ventilator, but his, his pupils were fixed and dilated. And, and basically he was brain dead. The, The bullet had gone straight through and, um, bisected his brain and at that point there's nothing we can really do and so but i thought well what's the one thing that i can do to try to help the family and i said well let me clean him up you know so i was trying to suture the wound closed yeah and some ill-advised person let his mother into the room while i was working oh, my and word. so she comes in and freezes and sees you know the blood and her little her boy's brain matter on my hands. And so she screams and crumples to the ground. And I just tugged my gloves off and walked out of the room and just burst into tears. Right. And then had to continue my shift for the next eight hours. Right. (laughs) You know? And so after that, I, I, the next morning just felt like something vital had been ripped from me Mm -hmm. and, and just thought, you know, how could, if there is a God, how could he, he allowed this kind of horror to happen and this kind of evil to exist. Cause like I kept thinking about the perpetrators, like for right. the people who assaulted each of these kids had to look at them and see no value yeah, and to see no worth in that other person that they would so easily take a life, you know? Yeah. And so feeling bereft normally after one of these shifts, I would go home and sleep <laughs> yeah. knowing that I had to be there the next morning. Right. Uh, but I felt so hollow and in need of clinging to something true and good that I actually drove out um, two hours. I'm I'm in Massachusetts, so I drove out along the uh, Mohawk Trail and into Western Massachusetts into the Berkshires. And I stopped at a bridge, and it was October. And I don't know if you've ever experienced October in New England, but it's just jewel tones, yeah. beautiful clear day. Yep. You know the hills lit a fire with foliage and I stood on this bridge and tried to pray. Mm. And because I didn't know Christ and had never read scripture, which I normally would lean into in such circumstances. Now I didn't know where to turn. So I, I prayed, couldn't, I tried to pray, couldn't find the words and then just heard silence around me. And I walked away from that bridge saying, well, God doesn't exist. Yeah. Cause I had no answers. Um, and, Thereafter, I was agnostic and fell into the worst depression of my life because without God, there is no purpose. Yeah. There's no, it just saps everything of meaning when, when you say, what is this all for? And right. so I continued on and went about my work, but it was very perfunctorily. You know, I would go, I'd go to work and I'd do my job and I, but the whole time felt dead inside. And for the next year, I really struggled with um, thoughts of suicide. I wanted to throw myself off that same bridge that I'd gone to the first yeah. time. Yep. And uh, the only thing that held me back was love for my husband. Mm-hmm. You know, God bless him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I kind of I was in this state of just being existing but not really living for about a year. And then it was actually during my fellowship training in critical care when I was in the ICU and that the Lord used it all to bring me to himself, you know? And I think often when I think of this, I think of like the Psalms of Lament where um, David or Asaph will be crying out to God, how long, O Lord, you know, where are you in this? And he uses that moment to turn them to himself. Or I think about Jonah all the time, mm-hmm. you know, in the belly of the, of the fish. And that's only then is when he actually looks up to God and right. prays is when he's brought down to the depths. And I believe it was the same for me uh, that the Lord was using this where he was, I was brought so low to really reveal to me who he was and in where our hope lies. Um, I was working in the intensive care unit and we had a really sad case of a, a gentleman who, had had a cardiac arrest after an orthopedic procedure. And he had had CPR for so long 
they revived him, but he had severe brain injury mm. from lack of oxygen for all the wow. time that he had no heartbeat. Yeah. And uh, it was the brain injury was so severe that neurologists did not think that he would ever recuperate beyond maybe tracking loved ones around the room. They didn't think he'd be able to speak, that he would understand, that he'd respond. Yeah. And this is from reviewing the scans and watching over weeks that he had no improvement. And his family, it was it was breaking my heart because his family would stand vigil at his bedside day after day and like cling to any glimmer of a change and say, you know, do you think he'll get better? And I, I wanted to give them hope, but I didn't see foresee that there'd be any improvement. And then one day his wife, um, and they loved cheesy 80s tunes. <laughs> so yeah. His wife starts belting at the top of her lungs. Um, Tiffany's, I think we're alone now. <laughs> Speaking my language, I'm a child <laughs> exactly. of the '80s. Oh, I love that song. Exactly. I'm right Hate that song, you. but I love that song. <laughs> Not one of my top picks, but, yeah. <laughs> but I know it. Um, and so I, I came running into the room. I'm like, "Are you okay?" Because she was screaming it. And she says, "You know, Dr. Butler, I, I had a. Dr- I come in the room first of all, and she's put a cross above his bed, and she's wearing another one, and they're both as big as avocados." Okay. And she says, I was praying and praying last night and I woke up this morning and God told me he's going to be okay. Hmm. And, and I just felt crestfallen because number one, I didn't believe that the God on whom she was leaning existed. Right. Number two, nothing, none of the evidence we had suggested he was going to be okay. Yep. And I, I said, I, I really hope that's the case. That's all I could say. Mm-hmm. And then later that afternoon, his family because his kids were there by this point, start calling my name, Dr. Butler. And I come to the room and they say, they say he moved his right toe when we told him to, you know, and I think, oh, this is just a reflex. This happens commonly after brain injury. Well, you'll have movement sometimes and it's not indicative necessarily that someone's recuperating or generating new neurons. It's more a reflex from the spinal cord. And so I said, that's all this is. So I yelled in his ear. He didn't move. Then they did. And he moved his toe. Wow. And I still said, oh, it's nothing. But then the next day, he turned toward them when they called his name. Hmm. And then the next day, he started blinking to command. You'd say, okay, blink if you hear me say that. And he would actually start, he started following commands. Wow. And then over, over the next two weeks, he had a full recovery hmm. where he was up sitting in a chair, cracking jokes not remember anything that happened, obviously, but back to he was functional, like yeah. far exceeding what anyone anticipated. And, you know, we we all said, oh, it's an outlier. This is unusual. We were thrilled. But I couldn't ignore the fact that this was in response to prayer. Hmm. And, and what that did was broke through to me and say, there's something beyond our protocols and our understanding of physiology that was at work here. And at first, I'm ashamed to say, I I sought the truth elsewhere, even though I'd witnessed a prayer in Jesus's name. (laughs) Yeah. Because because I was raised a nominal Christian, I thought I knew Christianity. And so I I read the Bhagavad Gita and I read the Quran and could not shake the fact that for all of them, there was something direly missing because it suggested that salvation was based upon things we do. Mm -hmm. And that did not jive for me after witnessing, and I didn't have a name for sin yet at this point, but just witnessing that no matter what walk of life you walk, you know, where you come from, what your story is, that there's a a calamity that runs within the chambers of our heart that will bring us all through double doors in the emergency room at some point. Yeah. You know, and I'd seen that and I'd seen how it, it, it does not spare anyone. (laughs) And, and thought, if salvation is up to us, we're really in trouble. <laughs> you know? um, and so my husband, by this point, had actually started attending church. And he encouraged me to read scripture. Wow. And so for the first time, I read the four gospels. And I read Romans. And I was just so awestruck when I read Romans 5 of how God talks about how Paul talks about how God actually refines us in our suffering and points us to our hope. Right. And, and then reading through the gospels, just saying that Christ suffered for us. So even if we can't 
in the moment understand why we're enduring what we're enduring or, or why evil befalls us, we can look to Jesus and know that he endured it too. And so much more so than we could ever imagine. And he did it for us. Right. You know, so it, it, it brought a meaning um, to suffering that I had never fathomed. And I am just eternally grateful <laughs> for the way the Lord has used um, episodes in very dark days to break through and to then reveal his love. That was a very long explanation. No, that's so I'm sorry. good. No, no, no. I, I love it. That's so helpful. And thank you so much for being so honest and letting us into the intimate details of, of your conversion. So essentially oh, it's just circumstances and suffering and the reading scripture and yeah. through that you become a Christian. Yeah. How did, yeah. why was your husband starting to go to church? Sim, sim, well, he's not in the medical field, but a similar trajectory of suffering and doubt and then searching for meaning and finding it through Christ. So wow. he was similar to me. He went to church, but still did not really understand the gospel. Yep. Uh, and, and around the same time that I was suffering, he lost his job. Okay. And, and had put, had staked so much of his identity in his career for so long that it gutted him. And he spent a year actually. And, and this is one of those things too, where we realized that the Lord used that year to work in him. You know, because it was not an easy task of finding a job right away. He was for a year searching. And his sister had urged him to seek out a church. Um, and I believe, I believe they were preaching on Joshua when he first went. And it was the, and, and they tied it to the gospel. And it was the first time he'd really heard the gospel preached and then had dove into writings of R.C. Sproul and, <laughs> um, you know, resources by the Gospel Coalition and D.A. Carson and, and just, was awestruck and with what solace there was to know that he was so broken as we all are yeah. and what, and what God had done for him in Christ yeah, and gave him hope. And it also helped him to realize that his identity was first and foremost as an image bearer of God, won by Christ, not as someone who was without a job at the time, yeah. you know? So, and it was, it was in that setting and he kept urging me long before I acquiesced, he kept urging me and I would go and I'd sit there and I'd stare in defiance because <laughs> I didn't believe in any of it. Yeah. But he, but the Lord had already brought him to himself also through a, a similar trajectory of struggle. Wow. Um, and had planted that seed. So. Wow. That's, I, I just love hearing people's conversion stories. Um, yeah. It's, it's so good uh, to hear that. I mean, I just what you've already told me. I, mean, I got a list of a bunch of questions I'd love to ask you, but let, let's just start here because I don't want to neglect to talk about your book. Um, sure. Just give us a thirty thousand foot view of your book and why you wrote it and what you really tried to accomplish through it. Sure. So, this is um my second book. My first one is called Between Life and Death: A Gospel Centered Guide to end-of-life medical care. Mm -hmm. And and that was my attempt after having witnessed in the intensive care unit, and we can talk about this too if you want, whatever you'd like, um, the struggles that people have to make decisions about end-of-life care, ventilators, CPR, all these things through the lens of their faith when things are so emotionally charged and so unfamiliar. And so that was a very practical book where I really wanted to mine what does scripture say about life and death and suffering and who we are in Christ and, and then try to unpack all the different technology we use to help guide people. Yeah. But after I wrote that, I was still very, feeling very much like the Lord had given me narratives to steward, uh, knowing that not many people have witnessed the degree and the intensity of, of suffering and calamity as those of us who work in healthcare in these very highly charged settings do. Uh, and really placed it on my heart to try to share these stories and in particular to point to our hope we have in Christ in moments where we're really wondering about the, about the meaning of it all. I mean, my testimony is part of it, but just I witnessed so many episodes of people struggling with the fact of they prayed for healing and the healing didn't come. Right. And how do I reconcile that? Or right. um, the fear that they have or the bad outcomes that happen and the death that happens despite prayer and where is God and all that. 
And, and I walked with a friend too over the past couple of years who was just such a, a faithful brother in Christ who would witness to people while he was in the hospital. Like he would ask us to bring copies of the Bible for him to distribute to staff. Mm-hmm. And, but I watched even, he, he ultimately died from end-stage emphysema. And I watched in his last six months of life, the, the rigors and the burdens of constantly coming back and forth from the hospital and never getting well wore him down as well too, where he actually started to question his salvation, Yeah, you know? And so I just have, I just have seen how these trials in the hospital, whether you're a healthcare worker, whether you're a patient enduring it, or whether you're a loved one walking alongside someone who's struggling with illness, they, they have the capacity to bring us to our knees. Yep. And I think the only way to really cleave to our hope is to harbor God's word in our heart. And to remember who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. And yeah. the book is an attempt to point people to those things, to, to talk about some of the, the, the suffering that can occur, the questions we can face, and then to point us to scripture. So that's um, the first book you wrote. That's the second. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Because you... you sorry. No, no, no. I launched... I'm sorry. The first book was about ICU care. And it was very practical. Gotcha. And the second one, Glimmers of Grace, looks at look mining scripture for who God is and what he's done and cleaving to that in the hospital when we're struggling with faith. <laughs> yes. Gotcha. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's good. And both sound very similar in a lot of ways. I'm sure there's some overlap. There, There is some. The second, the first book was very practical and very research driven. Yeah. Um, the second book that is was just released is much more devotional. Okay. It's much more anecdotes and reflections and tying it to exegesis of the Bible. Gotcha. Um, so they're, they're, they're quite different in their tones. Yeah. Well, man, I, I can just share um, from my somewhat recent past overlap with this. Um, my dad mm-hmm. passed away almost exactly six years ago from multiple myeloma. Oh, gosh, and, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I'm, four, I'm almost 45 and... <laughs> I, I've never done that before. And, mm. um, I, you know, like so many memories, I just remember hating the hospital. Like I just mm-hmm, hate the hospital. Mm-hmm, like this, this yep. whole edifice is erected to deal with the, the result of sin in the world. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And like, I just, these haunting memories of, um, and granted, like, you know, everybody's story is very complicated. I had a very complicated relationship mm-hmm. with my dad and a lot of that mm-hmm. was never resolved. And I mean, I could do, a, you know, I could do a, eight hours of a podcast just on that, which we won't do, mm-hmm. but, um, but man, just that feeling of helplessness Yeah. and Lord, yeah. would you just do what needs to happen? Cause this middle ground of, we know he's going to die, but he's not dying yet. This isn't working yeah, out. This yeah. isn't. This isn't working out for me. I'm just climbing the walls, you know, right. just with anxiety right. and lack of being in control. And mm-hmm. man, that was hard. It was really, mm-hmm. really hard. And I and I can imagine scenarios that would be even, you know, ten times harder. Mm-hmm. But just to know that there's a book out there that that deals with these kind of things, you know, I, I'd love to just talk about some of your reflections about specifically end of life care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got to watch my dad be on a, be intubated for three days mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that was traumatic. You mm-hmm, know, just like, mm-hmm. I've never seen someone in that position, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where they're have a machine breathing for them. Um, and he was sort of conscious and it was just, mm-hmm. it was horrible. I know that end of life care is very controversial in certain scenarios and in certain um, different, uh, yeah, just scenarios met with different convictions about Mm -hmm. what is appropriate. Just share with us maybe some of your journey on how you think about. I know this is probably very, very context specific, but I know you probably have some higher level thoughts. Yeah. about uh, end-of-life care and the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. You want to just share some of those thoughts with us? Oh, gosh, absolutely. First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for what you had to endure. Thank you. Um, 
because I can only imagine what you're talking about. Just the anguish of not knowing what, you know, what to do next, what's coming next, watching him struggle on a ventilator. I, I, I can only imagine how much grief that inflicted. Yeah. Um, and maybe even lingers. So I'm, I'll just pray for solace for you. Thank you. I appreciate um, that. And I think, I think what makes these situations so hard is, and what people I think don't entirely understand because we doctors do a really crummy job of explaining it mm-hmm. is that interventions in end of life care. And when I say this, I'm talking about the things we would use in an ICU, like ventilators, like you said, ventilators, endotracheal tubes, chest compressions, even dialysis, all of these things. Um, they can save life when things are reversible. Mm -hmm. So when the underlying illness is something that you can recover from, they're absolutely something that can help. But what happens all too often is that because we foist decisions so much on families without really explaining things well, is that they can oftentimes prolong death if they're used in circumstances where the underlying condition is not something that's recoverable. You know, so... As an example, if someone comes in with a pneumonia, that's a community-acquired pneumonia, easily treatable with antibiotics, and they have no other medical conditions, that's kind of a no-brainer. You know, using a ventilator to save that person's life is the right thing to do because right. the chances are we treat the pneumonia, they come off the ventilator, they go home. Right. It becomes much harder and, and more difficult when you have someone who comes in with, say, end-stage emphysema, for which we have no treatment, uh, a fungal pneumonia, which is much more complicated to treat, and then, say, metastatic lung cancer that's in its end stages. And that's the cause of the respiratory failure. Or like my dad, where there's no cure for multiple myeloma. Right. And 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 it's the, yeah. And we knew that like this was just a matter of time. Right. Right. Exactly. And so in those circumstances, using a ventilator actually will often just prolong the dying process. Right. It won't bring about recovery because the, the whole point and the function of these technologies isn't really so much to save, to save life. Really. It's not a cure. It's not a cure. It's not curative. It's to buy time. It's to support right. the organs while we use other things to try to bring about cure. Right. And I think we do a really bad job of making that distinction as doctors. Um, so when I, when I try to guide people through these kinds of decisions from a biblical standpoint, I think, too, what I've seen people do is they will cling to one idea from the Bible and ignore the overall narrative arc. So they'll say, well, I, I you know, killing is, law, is wrong. God teaches us we need to preserve life. So I have to do everything at all costs and ignore the fact that God is also sovereign over our life and death and that death is inevitable right. for us until Christ returns, you know, so the four biblical principles that I, I point to and try to unpack is that, yes, mortal life is sacred. We know that from the Ten Commandments. It's a gift from God that we're to steward and cherish. But also, God has authority over our life and death. And death is something that will come to all of us. Um, and third is that to love neighbor, and because we're called to have mercy, we need to also be concerned about suffering. Yeah, And, and there are some moments when... These kinds of interventions um, don't actually preserve life. They prolong suffering and death, and we need to be attuned to that. Uh, And then the last thing is that ultimately our hope is in Christ, and that because of what Christ has done, uh, death has been swallowed up in victory. Mm -hmm. And as as believers, we need not fear it and and oppose it so stalwartly that yeah. we take on interventions that aren't going to help. So the, the two principles, like kind of boiling all those things down, I'm going quickly, I know, but um, I feel like I'm talking too much. That's so okay. I, I think it's helpful whenever we're asking about these things is to say, will any given intervention pr- preserve life? And does it have potential to bring me or a loved one home? Or is it going to prolong suffering and death? I think yeah. that's the big question to ask. Um, and I think it's going to differ depending on the circumstances, but I think having advanced directives still and having conversations about this with loved ones is helpful. 
in, in terms of having a guiding set of principles in mind, you know, so right. like my advanced directive says that if these kinds of technologies, so rather than yes, no ventilator, it's if, <laughs> if doctors believe that these technologies will actually bring me back to a state where I can read the Bible again and be with my family again, yes, I want them, Yeah, <laughs> you know, if not, then no, it's not, it's not necessarily God honoring to continue them. It can be cruel to continue them um, because they do bring about suffering. They do yep. worsen suffering significantly. So. Yeah. These are such complicated, challenging scenarios. I mean, I remember my, my dad and he, he told us kind of in passing, like, you know, cause he had multiple myeloma for five years, but he was mm. asymptomatic for about four of those years. And he would tell us, Hey, if I ever get down to it and they're, you know, they got me, I I don't want to be hooked up to all these machines, but what Mm -hmm. was in writing. And when you're in the heat of the moment and someone is like drowning in their own fluids, um, like that's a different deal when you're for my mom and making those decisions is just gut wrenching. And so I, Mm I would assume that you would you would say to, like for example our church um, we've got a lot of young people uh, mm-hmm. like I'm the old guy and and so most people aren't thinking about end of life issues but they may mm-hmm. need to be thinking about it with their parents. Absolutely. I would assume you would say like, do you have advice about even how to talk about these things with your parents mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or grandparents or because uh, that's got to be a for certain people and certain families, a really challenging conversation. Like, are we yeah. going to talk about advanced directives and how does our Christian mm-hmm. faith inform this? And I think, um, yes, very hard discussions, really critical discussions though, to be honest. I mean, and there's actually data to back this up. There's 75% of people are not able to vouch for themselves at the end of life. Mm-hmm. So, so many of us don't want to think about it. And say, I, I don't, I don't want to, I'll decide when the time comes. We're not going to be able to, you know, we'll either right. be intubated ourselves or our illness will preclude us from being able to talk. Right. And so when that happens by default, the, the decision-making goes to next of kin. Right. So, you know, and that can even create problems if we haven't designated who that is, you know, but it'll be, you know, a spouse, children, brother, sister, whomever. And if we don't equip those we love, um, with some idea of what our wishes are, it can really deepen grief. And, and it's been shown that people who, um, die in the ICU, whose family members make decisions for them in the ICU before they die. If there was no discussion and no advanced directive for the next year, they suffer from, um, from anxiety and from depression yeah, and it makes total aggravated sense. Aggravated grief. Yeah, it makes total yeah, sense because you're bearing the weight of this truly life and death situation. Right. And if I don't know exactly what, it's different when my dad says, "I don't want an, intub- I don't want to be intubated." Period. Right. Like, well, that's what right. he wanted, and we're giving him what he wanted. But if that's not clear, man, that's a weight that absolutely heavy to carry. Absolutely. So you know, I would, I would posit it when you're having these conversations, and it might have to be multiple times before yeah. a, a parent feels comfortable. But say that you know, I know this is not a fun dinner table conversation, obviously, but to posit it as it's for two reasons that that we're asking. It's number one, because we love that parent and we want to make sure that when the time comes, we're honoring their wishes and trying to help them when they can't speak for themselves. And we don't want them to endure something that's not okay for them. And so for us to love them in that moment, knowing again, that they're not going to be able to voice for themselves what they want, we'd like to know. And also this is the second thing of also, you know, for us as children of those parents saying, I, I don't think I could handle putting you through something that would cause you suffering when you would, were not okay with it. So can you mm-hmm. please tell me what would be okay and what wouldn't be, yeah. you know? So it's, it's those two purposes. And I think if we, we approach it that way, saying that it's out of love, Yep. that we're offering, we're trying to have this discussion. And with the awareness that our, our loved ones are not going to be able to tell us themselves when the time comes Yeah. Uh, to, to have these ahead of time. Do you go into this like in more detail in your books, just in terms of like how yeah. to actually have these conversations yes. in, in a yes. way that's gracious? Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay. Absolutely. Well, that's good to know. We can point in the, in to the first that. book. <laughs> yeah, in the <laughs> first book. Between life and death. Yeah. Yep. We can point people to that, and um, sure. Because yeah, we're all going to face this at some point. But it's even got me thinking. Like, I mean, any of us can get in a car accident. Any of us can get diagnosed with cancer at any time. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I need to probably have this conversation. Is or I need to at least mm-hmm. start thinking about it. Have it with my wife. Have it with my kids. Um, right. Man, that's. It's not fun to think about those no, things, it's but, but it's, it's loving, not. right? It's loving yes. for the sake of your your spouse or your kids. Right. Um, Absolutely, it is. It's so not how, easy, but it is. So, Katie, how does this relate to the whole issue of medical-assisted suicide? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it I feels like there's some key differences, but also a lot of overlap in some ways. Yeah. Oh, oh, this topic. Deep, deep <laughs> waters, right? Deep waters. No, no, I, I, I shudder because there, there's a thousand thoughts going through my head at sure. once. Sure. Um, I actually, I, yes. So the I actually devote a chapter to this in the book too. I think it's critical from a Christian standpoint um, to differentiate between comfort measures, which mm-hmm. is when you have a loved one in the hospital and we've determined that further aggressive measures, the ventilator and everything else is either not helping or is causing suffering beyond what they would be able to tolerate and they would accept. Okay. And saying, okay, as a result, then we're going to take away that ventilator. That's very different even though in a lot of people's minds, I know they struggle to capture this. It's very different than saying this person's suffering, so I'm going to give them an injection to end their life. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you take away these aggressive measures, what you're allowing is the underlying illness to run its course. Eat its course, yes. Yeah. And we've had cases where we've taken away that technology and the person has survived. Sure. And they go home. Do you know that the goal is not to end the life. It's to say, I'm taking away this burdensome technology and I'm going to focus instead on this person's comfort uh, from their underlying illness, you know, alleviating the symptoms from their illness. That's very different than saying, I'm actually going to actively take this person's life or help them to take their own life with medication. Mm -hmm. Um, and And I shudder when I talk about this because my concern is that there's been this movement, it's in, in Canada and now seeping down to the United States, to change the terminology of physician-assisted suicide and to call it medical aid in dying, hmm. which I find to be very problematic because medical aid in dying is palliative care. You know, it's it's providing care for people who are at the end of life and trying to ensure that we're being loving to them and that they're comfortable and that they're having those last conversations. That's medical aid in dying. And, and I get very frustrated when we conflate these two because active euthanasia, active taking of life is not biblical. It's not okay. Mm-hmm. And it is suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're two very, very different things. And so I don't want to dissuade people when they're at a position in a position of realizing that aggressive measures like ventilators won't help of thinking that they can't say, okay, let's, let's switch to comfort measures because they're worried that that's physician-assisted suicide. It's not. Yeah. It's not the same thing. Right. So one is, um, I'm very uncomfortable, but I'm not maybe going to die. Another one is I'm going to die and I just need, uh, like it's, it's not helping to prolong the process. Right. It's, it's, I'm dying. Nothing's going to change that. Okay. And I'm allowing death to occur versus the other, you know, in, in physician assisted suicide, often they will have criteria saying that you need to be, to have a terminal diagnosis. So these people often might be at the end of life, but the difference is that instead of allowing the disease process to run its course and have that be the cause of death is that they say, I don't want to deal with this. This is too much. And then they, they're given an injection or a medication to end their life themselves. Yeah, my word, I can just imagine how this would be gut-wrenching again for like, because who wants to look at someone who's suffering horribly yeah. and, and say, well, nope, you're just going to have to keep suffering, you know? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But man, like, uh, yeah, it's, I can just... I'm just thankful for folks like you that are thinking through medical ethics from a Christian yeah. perspective. <laughs> well, I, you, you know, I think, 
I think it's compassionate to say I want to alleviate the suffering of this person, but I think the fact that we think suicide should be the answer speaks to our terrible job coming alongside those who are dying and showing them that their lives actually have meaning and dignity still yeah. and trying to ease their suffering in other ways. And I, and I say that because when they've actually looked at the people who seek out physician-assisted suicide, the criteria for it are the same as for hospice, okay? But they choose it not necessarily because of pain. It's not that pain is the number one reason. It's actually loss of autonomy. Wow. Is that they can't do the things that they used to love to do, which to me speaks to people aren't finding meaning. Yeah. Yep. And so who are we as brothers and sisters? How are we failing others that they look and say, you know, at the end of my life, I'm just going to end it because I don't see meaning in continuing yeah. on, you know, yes. it's like we're really robbing people of, of dignity and of purpose yep. somehow there's a void. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is this is really important stuff. How would you how would you okay, okay, I'm again I'm I'm drawing on my situation of spending sorry. hours and hours with my dad in his end of yeah. life, but this is something my sister and I have talked a lot about. How would you recommend interacting with medical professionals? Mm-hmm. Um because it seems like on the one hand there can be experiences that are really, really positive and other times they are really challenging and I've had mm-hmm. both. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I, one of the things I noticed is like when there's an advocate, like my mm-hmm. sister and my mom and and myself were my dad's advocate mm-hmm. that was just another set of eyeballs and weren't afraid to communicate. Um, yeah. Like that was a, a real advantage, I think, mm-hmm. for my mm-hmm. dad. But do you have, because you're on the other end of it or you're on the other end of it, and I can see how in your position or your former position as a doctor in all of these mm-hmm. crazy intense situations, um, it's really hard. You're thinking about the patient, you're thinking about the family, you're thinking about the stress of, I got to save this person's life and I got to make decisions, boom, 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 boom. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for folks in your role as well. It seems like it's a potential powder keg of frustration and mm-hmm. uh, conflict, honestly. And and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in our experience, we've we walked through some of that. Um, but speak to family members that are in mm-hmm. this kind of a situation in dealing with uh, the medical establishment. What are your thoughts? I'm in in advice. Yeah, I would empower you to ask questions mm-hmm. and. You know, part of this is is setting. Part of the difficulty is when will my questions best be answered? <laughs> right. I'm sure you probably had family meetings. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing in the mm-hmm. ICU. Yeah. Yeah. Ask, I mean, yeah. constantly yeah. communicating. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I a lot of people don't feel like they can bring up the questions that are tumbling in their heads, mm-hmm. um, and I found that because they're, the workload is so high. Oftentimes, clinicians, we make the mistake of talking at people, dumping information out, and proceeding on our way. Yeah. You know, and I think it's really important to know that that doesn't mean that you have to just sit there confused (laughs) (laughs) and go home and worry. No, you you have the right. And if if you're advocating for someone who can't speak for themselves... Really, actually, the responsibility, you know, to voice up and say, wait a minute, hold the phone, you know, and and ask as many questions as you need to until you really feel like you understand the situation. Yeah. You know, let me jump on that for a second because I came. Sure. We we live in Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin uh, at our church. We've had a lot of medical professionals come through and I have a lot Mm -hmm. of close friends that are MDs. And um, when I, when, after my dad passed and I'd spent all these hours with doctors and in hospital rooms and such, I remember talking to my friend Jay, who's a, um, who's a uh, pulmonologist. Mm. And I just said, Jay, I just have, I mean, I have deep respect for nurses, especially mm-hmm. nurses, man. They, they work hard. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And yeah, they're caught between 
doctors and patients and family members. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> God but, bless them. God bless them. <laughs> yeah. Give them, give them perseverance, Lord. Um, but I said to Jay, just one request. You've got to speak English to these people. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like <laughs> yes. the number of doctors that would come in and just rattle off all this stuff. Like, oh, I know. Like I, know. I can, I can, I'm a musician, so mm-hmm. I can start talking music and mm-hmm. the Phrygian mode and, and the flat nine on the chord and the five and all this. And you'd be like, you're speaking English, but I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Right. And just like so many times where like, we're in these high stress situations. And yeah. And like you said, this information dump, and right. I don't have a clue what this person is talking about and they just assume right. that I do. And, you know, I can, yeah. So hearing you say, be sure to ask questions and, yeah. and if you, and if the doctor is a hard time explaining, well, just ask someone else, you know, ask mm-hmm. the nurse or just, you know, whatever, like that, that's, yeah. that's really important. In my experience, I just want to give a hearty amen to what you're saying. Right, right. I mean, I actually used to always open my family meetings by asking the family what they understood so far. Before mm-hmm. I said anything of an update, I wanted to know where are you yes. in, in the sense of understanding and processing everything that's going on. Because that then would help because some people would be right with me going into the room and have the same mindset and know, you know, what was happening. And others would be really confused, Yeah, uh, you know, and, and so, okay, I have to back up. But that's that's what should be done, mm-hmm. but oftentimes it won't be. Um, yeah. Sorry, there's a cat. That's all right. <laughs> we like cats. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's just it's critical to know that if you're if you have those questions and you're getting that info dump, to feel empowered to ask questions and to say, mm-hmm. okay, I, I still am confused about X Y Z, you know, and I include um, a series of questions in the book to ask the physicians as you're wrestling through end of life situations to try to understand what is it that's a threat to my loved one's life? Why? Yeah. You know, what is the likelihood that they're going to recover from this? What are the possible adverse effects of all these treatments that we're doing, you know, to help try to just clarify the situation and just, just feel empowered to do it. You, you have a right to, and, yeah. and they owe you that information. Yep. And I know there's probably a lot of medical personnel that will not a lot, but some that will listen to this. And I just, I just want to um, underscore the power of those in that role to, to mm-hmm. leave a lasting mm-hmm. um, positive memory or really mm-hmm. lasting negative memory. Mm-hmm. And, and man, like my dad's oncologist, you know, he's this like super you know, well-known expert in multiple myeloma, you know, at the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, he's a rock star in this, in this uh, field. And when we knew it was Mm kind of time to just be done, you know, Mm -hmm. he just, Mm -hmm. two things I remember. He sat my sister and I down. I don't know why why my mom wasn't there, but, um, sat my sister and I down in this conference room and the, and the nurse manager prepped everything. And he sat with us and just answered our questions mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. like an hour. And he didn't look at his yep. watch and he, yep. didn't give, he didn't give us the impression that he didn't have time. And man, that just, I'll never forget that. I'm talking about it mm-hmm. to this day. Yeah. And yeah. We, we had another experience where a doctor was just on call. He didn't know the situation and he was just, you know, punching the, clock because he had to and you know he's like basically rebuking my mom because she couldn't remember all of the medications that my dad was taking oh my goodness and my sister is about ready to yeah rightfully so yeah yeah. um and again i'm I'm i i remember that to this day but these these kind of scenarios are so intense um the the medical professionals have such an opportunity to to bring a lasting memory and mm-hmm. just, I don't know. I just, I, I, I am so sympathetic through that whole experience for how stressful and how hard they work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but just also like as Christians working in that, you know, in that realm of, of, of care for people, you know, mm-hmm. when you treat people as image bearers and, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. you'd want to be treated, man, it just goes such a long way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah. I uh, I just want to put that plug in there because it was so meaningful for us, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to to be treated by my dad's oncologist like that. It was so. Mm. So powerful. So, man, I, I, um, I'm so thankful, Katie, that you've written and thought so much about these issues because it is kind of flies under the radar, but just based on my experience, mm-hmm. um, I wish I'd read your books before I went into that kind of a scenario. So mm-hmm. again, just a plug mm-hmm. for those that haven't gone through that kind of scenario yeah, it's worth it to pick up Dr. Butler's book and and give it a read, because um, you'll be thrust into scenarios you never thought you'd have to face. Right. And right. And and my stress level was through the roof, um, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe it still would have been, but I, I just appreciate you providing some care from a Christian worldview for those that are in scenarios that are some of the hardest we find ourselves as human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I um, and I would just encourage people think about these things ahead of time, and also just seek out your your pastor and don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, if you're going in the midst of going through it, even um, for the family meetings, you can request to have a, a pastor there if it's somebody you trust, and you yeah. give them permission to sit in. You know, because we're so we get so mired and bogged down in the medical details and you and it it becomes hard to translate that to the truth that we proclaim every sunday mm-hmm. you know and and our understanding breaks down and we lean upon our faith but we don't know what to do mm-hmm. <laughs> in a faithful way you know when it's just so emotional and, right. and stressful um you know so i i just would encourage people just to ask questions of the doctors and just lean into you know, the chaplaincy and, and your pastors too, and ask, you know, remain prayerful and, and seek support throughout the whole process. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, Katie, it's been such a joy to chat with you today. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate your time. And um, is there any other like writing projects that you're thinking about, you know, for the future or yeah, like, I'd just be curious because you've written two books sort of uh, along similar lines. Are there other things that you've been thinking about? Uh, this is going to sound totally out of left field. Um, I have two crossways putting out two children's novels next year that I wrote. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So very different Avenue. Um, but after. So like, like, a the- like, mm. um, young adult fiction kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like middle grade cool. fiction with, uh, Christian symbolism, oh, you know, so it was, it was just after, and I, I know you've got a whole bunch of kids too, so I'm sure <laughs> you can relate to this, yep. but after, uh, being with my kids and reading to them, I actually read Tolkien with them. Oh yeah. We did too. Throughout the pandemic. Did you guys too? Not yeah. through the pandemic, but we've done it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, we, and have you guys done the wing feather saga? Yes. Oh, so <laughs> yeah. good. Plug, plug, yeah, just, plug for the Wing Feather Saga. Great, oh, great I know. series these, of books. These stories that just are so imaginative and yeah. enchanting, but have these these nuggets of the gospel that you can pull out. You oh, know? man. And, it brought me to tears once or twice when I was reading out loud to my kids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We had, um, when we were reading Fellowship of the Ring, and it's when you know Gandalf comes running across the bridge of Khazad-dûm and the Balrog falls, you know, down to the pit and Gandalf gets caught yep. and, and he says, fly you fools. And then right. he gets sucked down to the pit. You know, I pause like, okay, is this too much for my kids? Yeah. And my son says, I think he gave himself up for the others. Kind of like Jesus did, you know, it was just this Amen. wonderful moment. Yeah. So anyway, inspired by that, um, I thought, wow, what a wonderful thing to be able to write a story and to kind of bring gospel themes to life for kids and their families. You know, I wanted to be able to give parents the same experience that I had. Well, you're, you're very diverse in your gifting to be, uh, so logical and scientific and that whole math science brain plus create creative. Like that's, that's kind of rare. It doesn't translate well to the everyday. (laughs) 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 Ask my husband who balances the checkbook. It's not me. No, I, no, it's, I, it's it's God. It's God's blessing and His gifts. You sure. know, just Amen. that He's given opportunities. So, Amen. I'm just glad that you're faithful to to cultivate it and um, 
We look forward to that. I, my, my, uh, my, my, I was going to say my mom, not my mom, my wife and my <laughs> daughter uh, love young adult fiction and they Great. just devour that stuff. So when, yeah. when, is it, when is it scheduled to come out? I th- a year from this month, I think, is the first one tentatively. But, you, but you're finished. I'm finished with the, yeah, I finished with two of them. It's going to be a series. I finished the first two and they're coming out next year. I don't know exactly when, but wow, it's slated cool. for next year. <laughs> Well, we'll look forward to that, Katie. Well, thanks. And um, thank you so much again for giving us your time and your expertise and telling us your story. And um, maybe we can do it again sometime. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. 